Hello everyone, I'm The Touring, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, Lore of the Apocalypse. On this show, I'm going to explore the lore of Werewolf the Apocalypse. With version 5 of Werewolf and a couple of official video games all right around the corner, I thought it was a great time to refresh my memory on over two decades of lore while inviting others along for the ride. If you like what I'm doing or have any questions, feel free to hit me up on either Twitter or Patreon, both of which I'm the underscore Toring, and that's T-O-E-R-I-N-G. That's enough for me, let's get to it. The laws of the people are ancient, and while our traditions vary from tribe to tribe, all Garu must remember and hold to the central code of law called the Litany. Tonight, we will cover those laws, or at least the most basic precepts. In its full form, the Litany is as much an epic poem as a legal code, and its full recitation can take hours. While it takes the greatest scholars of our tribe to master its entirety, we are just going to cover the 13 most common precepts that everyone learns. Yes, I said 13, and yes, this is going to take a bit. Did you expect anything less from the old man? Each precept has a practical basis, but not all of them are universally upheld as unquestionably moral. Each tribe has its own views on right and wrong. In fact, many perceive a hypocritical gap between what Garu elders preach and what werewolves actually do. So for each precept, I will not only give you what it says, but how it fits into the real world. Without further ado, let's jump into this with both feet. The first law of the litany. Garu shall not mate with Garu. The law. Werewolves should only mate with humans or wolves, as mating with our own kind creates sterile, deformed, and sometimes insane creatures that are referred to as metis. Many people will point out that this word is a derogatory term for some native people in Canada, as well as being used as slang for a half-breed. I would remind those people that we have been around a lot longer than Canada has. For all we modern people know, the name is a reference to the Greek goddess Metis that was Zeus's first wife and the mother of Athena. Regardless of where the word came from, it can and does have deeply negative connotations, so I will try my best to avoid using it, and instead refer to the child born of two Garu as the third breed, or Garu-born that out of the way, let's move on to the reality of this law. As modern ideals on relationships and romances have advanced, leaving arranged marriages for political family reasons where they belong in the past, more and more of our children are being born to Garu parents that love each other very deeply. I personally do not believe that children should be punished for how they were born, but we'll dig into this a lot more deeply later. Next, we will move on to tenant number two. Combat the worm where it dwells and whenever it breeds. The law. Having long ago gone insane, the worm is a source of great evil and corruption. Its actions threaten Gaia and we were created to fight for her. Thus, it is our purpose to fight back against its influences. 
If any Garu neglects this duty, the apocalypse draws that much closer. The reality. The reality is that these are the final days. The worm may have grown too strong to completely destroy. Tribes and seps war with each other for territory, political power, or out of sheer spite. Few wish to admit that the apocalypse has already begun, and that it may have been their actions that allowed it to come about. It's up to those of us that still fight to choose our way forward very carefully. Do we continue to fight the worm, or do we turn our attention to the weaver? If we weaken the weaver and free the worm, will it restore the great spirit to sanity and thus restore the balance, or will it just make it stronger? As with anything, there are always more questions than there are answers, no? Enough doom and gloom, though. Let's get on with a little bit lighter precept. Respect the territory of another. The law. When one werewolf approaches another's territory, they must announce themselves first and ask permission to enter. The traditional method of doing this involves the howl of introduction, which includes your name, pack, totem, tribe, and home sept. Some of the more conservative tribes want lineage as well, but most don't. The flip side of this is that it's your responsibility to mark your territory, whether with scent or clawed sigils. In the reality, as the human population has grown, pissing on and clawing at trees to mark territory isn't exactly practical, and neither is howling like a mad wolf in the middle of the city. In more urban areas, younger and more technologically proficient Garu prefer emails, phone calls, and texting for notification and introductions. I heard that some cities even have shared GPS geofences to make territories, whatever that is. On to number four. Accept an honorable surrender. The law. As a warrior people, we werewolves settle grievances with ritual combat. We have a long dueling tradition, stressing trial by ordeal and single combat. Too many of our kind have lost their lives to overzealous practices, and while they may have died honorably, their losses weakened us all. A werewolf being attacked by another can traditionally end a duel peacefully by exposing their throat. The loser shouldn't suffer a loss of reputation or renown for doing so, but a victorious Garu should be praised for this mercy. The reality. Peaceful tribes and seps invoke this law freely, but some are more selective, as anything can happen in the heat of battle. We all struggle with the rage that wells within us making what sounds like a simple law to follow one of the toughest when blood begins to flow and instinct overcomes reason. Tenant number five I touched on shortly in our talk about spirits, and then last time in our talk about the ranks. Submission to those of higher station. Like the wolves with which we breed, werewolves maintain a strict hierarchical society. Through a system of renown and rank, a sept made up of many non-related Garu can quickly and easily establish a chain of command. A werewolf must always honor a reasonable request from a higher-ranking Garu. Reality. The weakening bonds of Garu society have done little to reinforce this tenet among the young, while many elders don't fully understand or can't cope with the human world. 
Each tribe has its own culture, and not all of those believe in kowtowing to tyrants or humoring egomaniacs with yard-long lineages. While the vast majority of werewolves will indeed honor the elders of their tribe or sept, opinions vary when it comes to the higher rank of others. Closely tied to precept number five is number six. The first share of the kill goes to the greatest of station. The law. The kill clauses that sometimes called started out only applying to hunts, but has expanded over time to include all the spoils of war. In theory, the most renowned Garu has the right to the most powerful fetishes or other valuable goods found by packmates. The reality. While pack mentality may be strong, not everyone thinks the same way, and modern thoughts on democracy can get in the way of this law. Be careful using your rank to demand your fair share more than once, for the hint of greed can taint even the most trusted member of a pack. Tenant number seven should seem like a no-brainer. Ye shall not eat the flesh of humans. The Law while I would love to say that this one rose from compassion, from what I can tell it actually came from practicality. Not long after the concord that ended the Impergium was struck, some of our mystics noticed that many Garu took a little too much pleasure in culling the human herds and were enjoying some meals. This cannibalism, it was discovered, opened these Garu up to the corruption of the worm. Elders that had grown fat and soft off of human prey soon found themselves unprepared for the more challenging prey of worm spirits that they should have been hunting all along. The Reality Considering the absolute shit that people eat today, it's not only flat-out gross to eat them, but pretty unhealthy as well. On to number 8. Respect those beneath ye, for all are of Gaia. The Law The Garu ancestors of legend pledged to become the world's protectors, so they must respect every creature's place in the natural world. Every werewolf is a part of this natural world, and thus by extension is worthy of the respect of others. We believe in an animistic warrior code where, like chivalry of old, we are tasked with the privilege and responsibility of being generous to those less fortunate than ourselves. Behaving in a respectable way toward those of lesser rank and renown than yourself is an easy way to maintain that same renown. The Reality Many cubs, new pack members, and third-breed Garu have learned the hard way that this tenant isn't always religiously enforced. Some of the more conservative tribes try to quantify respect and give those beneath them only the absolute minimum required for them to maintain their rank. Tenet number nine. This is a big one, so pay attention. The veil shall not be lifted. On this one, the law and reality are the same. The very existence of werewolves must remain a secret. We must always and forever be discreet in our dealing with humans, and this is not just a simple respect for the concord or humanity's right to its own civilization. No, no, the world is an incredibly dangerous place and humanity's weapons get more and more powerful every year. 
Remember how I mentioned vampires a few lessons ago? Well, that wasn't a joke. There's some reference to pop culture. They're real, and they're out there hunting us, as are even more sinister supernatural creatures. Vampires in particular live in the cities and cultivate herds of humans that feed them information. So anything you do to part the veil, you can be sure they'll hear about. Oh, and don't forget, there are always other servants of the worm lurking around looking for weaknesses to exploit. On top of all that that I've already mentioned, we still have a responsibility to protect humanity, and running around in Krenos forces the insanity or delirium upon them. Humans start to concoct all kinds of weird shit to try and explain what they've seen, and the next thing you know, that fear morphs into panic, and humans start to shoot anything that moves. Some idiot running around in Krenos can do just as much, if not more, damage than the worm spawn that they're hunting. On to number 10. Do not suffer thy people to tend thy sick. The law. The warrior who cannot fight or hunt also weakens those who must care for him. Long ago, infirm, aged, or mortally wounded Garu would be torn to pieces by his pact or sept, as such a pitiable hero should not suffer any further than necessary. The reality. These days, the merciful and dignified practice is to let such an elder choose how to end his own life. In many legends, many of our greatest heroes simply set out on one last journey, never to return. Some tribes despise this law as they believe in a natural death, going so far as to care for their elderly even through the most prolonged and horrifying illness. A few older Garu, whether due to depression or remorse, return to either human or lupine society to live out the rest of their days as either a mundane human or a wolf. 10 at 11. The leader may be challenged at any time during peace. The law. While our pack mentality may be strong, we should not tolerate a weak alpha or leader. If there is no immediate threat present, any Garu of sufficient rank may challenge the pack leader for their position. For a pack, this challenge usually takes the form of a quick, decisive duel, test of wits, or snarling display of intimidation. For a larger sept, the assembled werewolves watch such challenge play out as a high ritual. Reality Many tyrants resist challenges by simply being too strong to beat, leading some highly determined packs to challenge such a leader over and over, back to back, in an attempt to wear them down until they must relent. Some leaders choose the more uncommon method of keeping their sept or pack in a perpetual state of war, thus denying any who wish to challenge them the peace in which it would be appropriate. For most packs, though, swapping of the leader role occurs as needed with the strongest fighter leading in battle before deferring the role to the more cerebral or social when it's needed. Number 12. The leader may not be challenged during wartime. The law. Every military relies on a clear and decisive chain of command, and the warriors of Gaia are no different. Obedience within a pack is essential when dealing with the threats arrayed against us. Once a fight begins, the Alpha's word is law. A packmate who disobeys may be punished or assaulted by his companions or possibly even his sept after the danger has passed. The Reality 
As I mentioned just a moment ago, some alphas declare a constant state of warfare to abuse this tenant. Those who disobey usually have a chance to defend themselves before a judge in a form of court-martial. If the offender was under the sway of magic, the mind control of a vampire, or even corrupted or controlled by the worm, or Gaia forbid, the Alpha was just completely incompetent, the disobedience may be excused, especially if the action proved to save an individual, pack, or sept. And finally, the thirteenth precept. You shall take no action that causes a cairn to be violated. I've mentioned cairns or places of power before, and we'll certainly circle back around to them in more detail later, but the basic premise is that these locations surge with mystical energy. They are the very lifeblood of the earth, and as such are fiercely guarded by seps. These touchstones may have been referred to as ley lines, fonts, or nodes in the past, but to us they have always been cairns. If one of these is corrupted or destroyed, a part of the very earth dies with it, as does some of the power of Gaia and the Garu. No Garu argues against this tenant, and any werewolf who leads a proven or potential ally to a hidden cairn is punished severely, even if the act was unintentional. Now I know this is all a lot to take in and process, so we'll call it a night here. You'll not be asked to recite these at any point soon, although the litany is incredibly important to our mission. Please try to keep its lessons and warnings in mind as you lay down for the night, and as always, don't let the worm bite. That's it for this week's episode of Lore of the Apocalypse. Tune in next week for another one. Thank you for listening, but a very special thanks to my patrons, Mammy Parsons and the Primogen. Without you, the battle for Gaia would already be lost. Mm-hmm.